News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is a big day in Ottawa for all Canadians paying attention to kind of the fiscal health of the country. Finance Minister Krista Freeland will be delivering the government's fiscal update this afternoon. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joins us now to talk about what we should be watching for. Good morning, David. Morning, Simeon. And what you should be watching for is eye-watering numbers in terms of sizes of the the amount of red ink that we're spilling. And, and uh, you know, some will say for good reason. You remember in July, we were going to, the government then said the deficit was going to be around $340 billion. We could see it eclipse $400 billion at the end of the day. And, and to put that in perspective, before the pandemic, we were working on a federal deficit of about 30 billion dollars. So something north of 400, perhaps that'll push the debt past a trillion dollars. And that, whoa, we've never been there before. And all of this, of course, because we've got all these emergency pandemic programs, the emergency wage subsidy, the emergency rent subsidy, and an enhanced employment insurance program. And we expect that that, uh, Minister Freeland will announce perhaps some new spending programs they hinted at these in the throne speech, perhaps something to help out particular industry sectors in trouble, the airline industry, the tourism industry, maybe even some big restaurant chains who've been complaining they don't qualify for some of the rent subsidies. So big deficit numbers because of all that spending and maybe some more spending lopped on top of that. Now, David, this sounds very much more like a budget as opposed to a fiscal update then. Yeah, and, and, you know, we, you can argue about these things. It is not a budget, uh, and that the government is not calling it a budget. And, of course, this parliament has gone longest than any other parliament without a budget. Remember, the government got elected in February. It's never presented a budget. Budgets tend to present some uh, important information about the expectations of revenue and spending over usually at least five years, sometimes longer. The government has all long said, or at least since March, listen, this pandemic, just throw forecasting out the window, too hard to be able to make any reliable forecasts. And there's an argument about that. I've talked to former parliamentary budget officers which say, actually, in times of uncertainty is when you actually need a budget. It's more important than ever to have one. But that's what a budget normally has, a little more longer-term stuff, would have a more detailed discussion about how we're going to manage this huge trillion-dollar debt but we won't see that today, or we'll see something that's a little vague uh, in terms of in terms of that. One of the things that I'm looking for is fiscal anchors, and and that is something that you know conservatives have been arguing for. But I think a lot of economists have been saying, give us some way to benchmark whether or not things are affordable. And that goes to fiscal anchors. Right. Um, conservatives like balanced budgets. And we're not going to have a balanced budget, nor we're going to see one. The, the liberals used to have a fiscal anchor of debt to GDP ratio, sort of the idea of, you know, we shouldn't borrow more than our income sort of allows. So keep a low debt to GDP ratio. And the liberals were doing that, but they threw that out the window. So what now are our fiscal anchors going to be? We, we've We've been teased that we may hear about a new term, fiscal guardrails. I really don't know what that means, what, Simi, yeah, exactly. but presumably Minister Freeland will talk about that. But that, that's that that's the political debate I think we're going to see. Is I think there's broad agreement in the country that the spending was important. In fact, there are people say, you know, we couldn't afford, we shouldn't we couldn't afford not to run up these deficits because we got to make sure that businesses and individuals get through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. But then the debate will be about well, when does this spending lift, and what how, when do we know that we can take off this 
extraordinary spending. And again, there is some significant political debate on that question. And this is really the first time we're going to get a look at Krista Freeland as finance minister, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, she's done sort of a couple of finance ministry-like events. But yeah, this is the marquee event for a finance minister. And again, it's not a budget. It's a fiscal economic statement. And, you know, she's been giving some speeches where she sort of telegraphed some of her thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, and I can say inside the cabinet, she would be on the more... Uh, it, it's probably it, probably exaggeration to say f- she's more fiscally conservative, but she has used phrases like, you know, this is not limitless. Wh- the you know the the the, the ability right. of the federal government to spend to help people get through cabinet. There is she's used phrases. There is no free lunch. At some point, the debt and the deficits do have to be accounted for. But in the same breath, she's quite in line with things that PM has said, which is now is not the time to be thinking about p- reining in spending. We've got to get through the pandemic. And that's really the biggest risk, of course, for all these things. How how well is Canada going to do to get the reign of the pandemic? I mean, we've all been watching Alberta, where the numbers are going crazy, and they're having to go back into lockdowns for jurisdictions and B.C. to a degree. Um, you know, when, when you have high case numbers, that means public health officials yeah. got to lock things down. That hurts the economic recovery. And so, really, it's hard to say until we get... The, the pandemic under control, when the recovery can start, how quickly it's going to happen. And um, and that's the and I think that's the biggest risk for all these things. It sure is. All right, David, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, a month or so ago, we talked to a husband and wife who just written a book on the Fraser River and how we really don't appreciate it enough. And now we've got this new report out from a team of UBC researchers that show us that more than 100 species that live in the Fraser River estuary are at risk. So they're calling for a big investment in order to ensure the long-term survival of these species. Now, Dr. Tara Martin is on that team of researchers. She's a professor in the UBC Faculty of Forestry, and she spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about what this latest report reveals. 102 species are at risk of extinction within the Fraser River estuary. These species use the Fraser River estuary for either all of their life cycle or part of their life cycle. And they're at risk from a range of threats, cumulative threats, things like climate change, land use change, dredging and diking, uh, industrial development, pollution, all of these things combined have created a situation where the habitats and the, the resources that these species need are no longer available. What kind of species are we talking about? We're talking about our salmon, you know, five species of salmon. We're talking about sturgeon, southern resident killer whales, over 40 species of migratory bird, uh, pink fawn lilies, western toads, wonderful species that used to be in abundance uh, within the Fraser River estuary and which are facing extinction. Now, I see that you suggest a co-governance model could be a solution here. What exactly would that look like? At the moment, there's a lack of governance within the Fraser River estuary. It basically falls within the cracks. So we have uh, agencies which manage the land and we have agencies which manage uh, marine, the waters. But estuaries fall in the cracks. They're both marine and both terrestrial. And so... In order for the management strategies that we've identified to be successfully implemented, we need a governance body to oversee that implementation, to ensure that those strategies are implemented successfully. 
what we've identified is that the ideal governance strategy body would be a co-governance body where First Nations, the federal government, the province works alongside municipalities to implement these strategies. And what could some of those strategies look like, thinking about conservation strategies, for example? So they range everything from restoring aquatic habitat through to green infrastructure, through to pollution and sewerage upgrades, um, managing um, aquatic diseases. So there are a range of strategies that we can take on the land or in the, in the marine environment that will benefit all of these species. Now, with everything, we know that there's always a cost associated with it. What would the price tag be for creating a program, creating a system to help save these species at risk? That's really what makes this work unique, is that often conservation plans are presented without any cost. Uh, What we do is present the actions that are needed and how much that will cost. So for this work, the price tag is $381 over 25 years. So that's around 15 million a year. Or if you break that down further, that's the equivalent of, of one latte or one beer per person in the lower mainland per year. Well, that seems worth it to me. Because as well, the other side of this is if we do lose these species, then there could be an economic hit to industries that rely on the existence of these species in our waterways. This is a really important point, is that we often have conservation versus jobs pitted against each other. However, what we have found is that if we were to implement these strategies, we would create over 50 full-time jobs over the next 25 years within the region. We sequester huge amounts of carbon. We secure the future of industries which are dependent on these species, like having commercial salmon fishery, like having commercial whale watching. These industries and these economic opportunities depend wholly on the recovery of these species. Dr. Tara Martin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. So a reminder there, if you are headed out to the ferries this morning, double check. Go to their website and make sure that your ferry is going to be running. High winds have caused some cancellations and we'll, of course, uh, let you know how that goes. Right now, though, time for us to check in and say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. How was your weekend? Uh, It was good. My house is very crowded right now, but that's all right. It's all right. You know, because of the new puppy. New puppy, son home from university. He seems to just take up an inordinately large amount of space. You really get used to not having those kids around and then they come home and you think, oh boy, okay, here we go. Yeah, young men take up a lot of extra space. Well, young girls as well, because of course it's clothing everywhere, it's shoes everywhere, it's stuff, it's electronics everywhere. You're going, hold on, contain this to your room, can't you? And it's the thoughts. It's the thoughts on everything that I'm having a little trouble (laughs) with, right? Like thoughts on dinner. dinner. Yeah, thoughts on dinner. Why are we having this for dinner? Why can't we have this for dinner? Oh, I'll come grocery shopping with you. And then you're like, no, please don't, because then your bill goes up. But, you know, I could go on, but I won't. It sounds like you've already passed that point, though, of of having enough fun. You know, I've enjoyed your company. When does school start again? Yes, exactly. Hopefully soon. We will see. What did you get up to? 
Uh, it was low key. I cleaned and I nice. cleaned very thoroughly. So that's always satisfying when, you know, you wash all the floors by hand and you clean all the cupboards and then, you know, you, you look back at what you've accomplished and it's actually a fairly satisfying. It does. It does feel good. So I'm still enjoying the fresh bedding this morning. Oh. It's freshly washed yesterday. And mm. I love all that. I love all I that. I love cleaning. I've given up on that until after the holidays to give it a really <laughs> thorough, deep clean, like with the puppy and then the rain and everything. I like, I really want to get down the and kids. scrub the floors. So I'm just going to wait because there's no point in me doing it today because it'll just be need to get done again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And how is the new dog doing? You know what? He is good. He brings, here's the thing. I'm not a huge dog person, but I'm the only person in my family who's not a huge dog person. So it brings me joy to see how happy he makes everybody else, but not just my family. Take this guy out on the street and from across the street, people are smiling and they're shouting and they're waving and like people are very careful to not come too close, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so you can let him go and get petted if he wants to, like, you know, on a very long leash kind of thing, uh, but you're outside. But still, the amount of smiles and happiness he brings to people, you're just like, wow, what is it about puppies? Oh, that's so sweet. He is adorable, though. He's very reddish colored, little Gorgeous. baby Labrador. I mean, he he really is something sweet. Now, when it comes to his level of intelligence, have you been able to get a gauge for that yet? He's pretty smart. He's, oh, okay. he's very smart. Like, he, we, you can see him observing everything. What he's not smart about is staying away from our other older dog who uh. just does is like, what is this young punk doing in my house? And when is he leaving? <laughs> but other than that, he's very smart. He's already, he already knows how to sit. He already knows how to wait for his food. Like he's, he's very smart. He's only like 12 weeks old, 13 weeks old. So that's impressive. You know, I was reading a story this weekend about uh, a dog who saved a woman from a house fire in North Vancouver. And I thought, my dogs would never do that. Wow. I, I mean, I love them. I love them to death. But they, I don't, A, they're not particularly intelligent. And B, I don't know if they care that much about my, well, I love them. I really, really do. But let's be I know what I'm working with here. Uh, and I don't know if they care enough about my well-being. You know, have you ever tried that where you, you fall over and just to see what they would do? Would they come and rescue you? And No, they just go find a bone and they go chew it. I mean, they just oblivious. don't take you seriously. They don't take me seriously. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's an incredible story, though. Have you heard this no, story No, I haven't. Yet? Tell me. So this woman in North Vancouver, she was forced to evacuate her townhome this weekend when a neighboring unit caught on fire. And she said that it was her dog that alerted her to the flames so that she was able to escape safely. So her name is Courtney. She lives up on Princess Avenue. And she said that she could hear her dog barking, 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 barking at something that was happening outside loudly, wildly barking. And she thought, I think someone's trying to break into the unit. I I better get up out of bed and see what's going on here. So she said that she went to the kitchen to take a peek at what was happening outside. And of course, that's when she saw those vibrant orange and red colored flames, but they were being reflected out of a car window nearby. And she caught a glimpse of that, of course, and thought, "Uh uh-oh, there's a fire happening somewhere here in the complex. So she looks up. Then she sees the fire just pouring out of her neighbor's upstairs bedroom. So, of course, you know, she grabs her cell phone, she grabs a pair of socks, she grabs the dog's leash, and they head outside together and they call 911. Now, at the same time, the fire department up in North Vancouver, you know, they had been getting multiple phone calls about this as well. 
it was a very serious fire. Thankfully, no one died, but a 66-year-old man who was one of the residents of the unit was in respiratory arrest when crews arrived. He was taken to mm. intensive care, but he's in stable condition. He, the man's wife was taken to hospital as well to be treated for a less severe case of smoke inhalation. And in total, 20 residents had to evacuate the complex. And she said that there's so much smoke damage in her unit that she doesn't really know what the case is, when she's going to be able to come back oh. in. But she said, my smoke detector never went off, which is very alarming. But she said, I wouldn't have gotten out in time if the dog hadn't woken me up. And she said, I told my husband, we're not having a dog. We're not, we're, we're never not having a dog again, is what she said. She goes, my dog, Moyo, saved my life. You know, now you're making me think that I'm going to go home today and look at the animals and go, which one of you would save me? In case of something go wrong, like how do I put that to how do yeah. I put them to the test on that one to find out which one? I I, th- I think the older one would just because he knows that I'm the one who feeds him like on time mm-hmm. regularly, gives him like good food, give him all the little like sweet potatoes and the good things that he likes to eat. Maybe that counts for something. I don't know. Hmm. I love that though. Yeah, because now I'm looking at my two dogs thinking, okay. If one of you was going to save me, which one would it be? I think my elderly golden retriever, she sleeps most of the time anyway. So she would sleep through anything, an earthquake. She would sleep through it. The little one is fairly cunning and he hmm. does like to be fed. So I think that, yeah, he might be the one that, you know, wants to keep the, the hand, the that gravy feeds train the food going. still alive. Yeah. The gravy train going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, now, on t- if you really want to figure out how intelligent your dog is, why don't you sign them up for that new Lindsay Vaughn TV show, The Pack? Have you what? heard of this thing? No, I haven't. <laughs> so I don't entirely know what's going on with this show. It's on Amazon Prime. I believe it's something like The Amazing Race, except instead of taking you know, your brother or your spouse or whoever on the show with you, you bring your dog with you and you travel around the world and you and your dog compete against other people competitors and their dogs to win challenges and kind of whatever. So I think it's really similar to The Amazing Race, but check out this trailer. He's my best friend in the whole world, and I'm really happy to be doing this with him. Never in a million years did I think I'd be able to travel the world with my dog. I'm Lindsay Vaughn. I'm a gold medalist, but my real love is Leo, Bear, and Lucy. In this competition, dogs and their partners are teammates on the most thrilling adventure of their lives. Here we go. You know, Nikki, I could sign up my husband and our older dog for this. Oh, oh, they would be a great partner, a great partnership for that. Oh, they have a very good connection, right? Like Louis will do things for him that absolutely he will not do for anybody else. And all my husband has to do is like, look at him and say, go do this or think, like, just do this. And he knows, like, it's almost like you can tell what the other one is thinking. See, they they would really be a good pair for this show because I was watching some of the challenges in the trailer and it's stuff like, you know, you're in a soccer arena and you have to get your dog to knock the soccer ball through the net in order to get a goal. And I thought, okay, well, my dogs will never do that. And then there was another <laughs> one and they had uh, the dogs were, you know, they're up on a mountain and these dogs had to pull a sled through the snow in order for, you know, to cross the finish line to blah, blah, blah. And I thought, all right, well, again, my dogs will never do that. Oh, your poor dogs. I, I could see your husband and and Louie doing yeah, that. Yeah, I think Louie could do that. Who knows? Maybe other people have a smart dog too. Nikki, thank you. How smart is your dog? This is Mornings with Simi. 
premiers have criticized the federal government for not being clear on how many doses the provinces and territories will get. And more importantly, when exactly Canada will receive it. Exactly. That is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. There are still more questions than we have answers when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines for Canadians. The news, of course, out of the United States this morning is that Moderna, which is the company that has one of these looks like very successful vaccine candidates, is applying for emergency United States Food and Drug Administration approval uh, this morning so that they can start getting that vaccine out there to people. Now, this, of course, is very early on in the process, but if that's the case, how quickly will things be approved here in Canada to get things moving? So Mercedes also spoke with Intergovernmental Relations Minister Dominic LeBlanc about where Canada is in this international queue to get these vaccines. We're certainly in the top five, uh, Mercedes. Uh, As we have said from the beginning, uh, we as a government, as a national government, aggressively negotiated contracts with seven major suppliers of potential vaccines. The three that appear the first to likely be approved uh, for use because they're safe and effective, um, AstraZeneca, Moderna and Pfizer, Uh, We have literally millions of doses under contract and the first six million doses, which would vaccinate probably three million Canadians, because, again, it appears that two doses will be required to achieve the appropriate level of uh, of immunity. Uh, Those will start arriving in early January. So uh, very quickly thereafter, they'll ramp up and from other vaccine suppliers as they get approved, we hope. For, for use as, as being safe and effective by, by Health Canada, uh, they'll be available for Canadians. And the work we're doing right now, Mercedes, which we talked about with the premiers on Thursday evening, is to ensure that we have a very, very effective and efficient logistics system to roll out these vaccines safely at two provinces and territories so we can start immunizing Canadians on the very first opportunity. All right, that is Intergovernmental Relations Minister Dominic LeBlanc speaking to our Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. So still so, so many questions then from the provinces about, listen, how many doses is my province going to get? And then having to decide how are we going to distribute them? How is all of that going to happen? Well, there are a number of actually vaccine candidates that are available uh, to countries. And we kept hearing during those press conferences from the prime minister early on in the pandemic about, you know, money the government was giving to this company to secure Canada's place in line. And there were quite a few announcements like that. So what we now know that as of towards the end of November, Canada has paid to secure access to as many as 414 million doses of potential COVID-19 vaccines. And about 6 million of them or so are expected to arrive in Canada by March 31st of 2021. So they also have more money available to purchase more vaccines. But this is, of course, contingent upon Health Canada getting these approvals in and moving and approvals that come before Christmas. That's going to be the critical factor here. So there are a lot of eyes 
on Health Canada at this point to get things moving, especially if the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as we heard, is starting to consider vaccines like the Moderna vaccine to get things going. So more to come on that front as well. Remember that um, update that we're getting today on our COVID-19 numbers here in B.C. We no longer have anything to be proud of in this province, nothing at all. When you look at our numbers, hospitalization rates, our per capita infections, none of it looks good at this point. We'll have that live for you this afternoon. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I think one thing that people have found helpful during this pandemic and being shut up in the house is maybe getting outside, getting some fresh air, taking a walk in the wilderness or a hike or something like that. And that's why the trails have also been so busy. Well, now a local family doctor working with the BC Parks Foundation thinks that the benefits of being outdoors are so significant that actually doctors should consider prescribing nature for people who are experiencing increased stress and anxiety. We thought, well, that's an interesting idea. So let's talk about it. Melissa Lem joins us now, a a PARX founder. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Lem, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Simi, for having me. Good morning. How would you do this? Yeah, well, a nature prescription happens when a licensed healthcare professional, like a doctor or a nurse or psychologist, writes a formal recommendation down for their patient to spend time in nature to treat or prevent health conditions. So nature prescriptions were named one of the top eight global wellness trends in 2019, and this has been a while in coming. The first nature prescription program was established in the U.S. over a decade ago, and they've now spread to countries around the world, including the U.K., whose government recently announced a £4 million investment in green prescribing. And here at the BC Parks Foundation, like you mentioned, we are proud to be launching Canada's first national nature prescription program. So if you head over to our website, parkprescriptions.ca, you can find out how to register for a program. Okay, so do you think it just makes a difference for some people when doctors write it down on that little pad and hand it to them? Absolutely. So there is some evidence from phenomena like exercise prescriptions, which have now sort of hit the mainstream um, within medical practice in Canada, that writing something down does help motivate patients to fill it more often. There are sort of a few limited studies on nature prescriptions showing that in combination with directing patients to local green space information um, and also kind of support from their communities, that that does increase the rate that they go out into nature and enjoy it. So does it just kind of formalize the process, meaning as a doctor, you can talk to them and suggest things, but they're not going to take it seriously until you say, here, do this. That's right. So, I mean, I think most of us have had that uh, experience in the doctor's office where we're sitting there and the doctor is giving us all kinds of recommendations and some of them are going over our heads. But I know when I want a patient to remember something, I'll write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to them. Or, you know, right now in the pandemic, I'll send them an email with the, with the recommended information. So I think it just formalizes it and reminds them, hey, this is something my doctor wants me to do and something important. And what have you heard from patients, Dr. Lem, in terms of the benefits that they have had uh, from just going outside with all of this happening? Right. Well, I think one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this was because of the benefit I really felt. So my first job straight out of residency was um, in Northwest BC as a family physician, a full service rural physician. And so I did ER work. I delivered babies. I took care of sick inpatients. I was working really, really hard, um, but I was living in a place where I could see mountains out my front door, you know, or out my front window. There were bears who were walking across my, you know, my driveway and this beautiful walk through the woods. 
on the way to work. And I, I felt unstressed, essentially, which is kind of surprising given all, all the actual work stress on my life. Then I moved to, back to Toronto, where I was born, um, due to family reasons, and, you know, moved to downtown Toronto, essentially. And uh, there were streetcars going by my window, and I could see the CN Tower, you know, instead of right. green space out my window. And so I started looking into the health benefits of nature, doing research, and I thought, wow, there is a really, you know, significant body of evidence here, just based on the way I felt more stressed, even though the work mm-hmm. that I was doing in Toronto was a lot less stressful. And so that led me, you know, to my first patient ever, you know, it was about 10 years ago that I prescribed nature to who was actually a young student who had ADHD from Vancouver, um, who, who was saying that he was having a lot more trouble concentrating. And I thought, you know, based on what I've been researching for myself, I thought, why don't I just say it, even yeah. though he'll think I'm crunchy granola or something, right. you know, recommending nature. And he, you know, I, I, I said it, I looked at him and he just looked at me and nodded like he understood instinctively that that was perhaps part of why his symptoms were so much harder to control while he was in Toronto. So anyway, yeah, um, I followed up with him and yeah, he, he, he really did, you know, he benefited, I think, by heading out more instead of, you know, into green space. Right. But okay, that's the difference then, right? Like if you're prescribing that for somebody in downtown Toronto versus prescribing that to somebody who lives in, say, Kamloops or somewhere, is there not a, a difference in the type of outdoor activity they can enjoy? Do you know what's really interesting is there has been some research showing that you get the benefits from nature when it's a meaningful experience for you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be scaling a mountain peak or in, you know, in, in kind of deep old growth rainforest. If you can get that sense that you've had contact with nature, there's some research showing that that's what's important for your mental health benefit. So, you know, if you're in, a, in Toronto, for example, where I lived, you could go down into the ravines um, where there's beautiful forest or you can head to the beach like of Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to find something that's meaningful to you in your environment. And I don't think if you look, I don't think it's too, too hard to find green spaces in most places wherever we live in Canada. So you're saying even a walk, just a walk and, and noticing a little bit of nature would help. Exactly. And being mindful too. you know, so often when I know, you know, I have a busy schedule when I go out into nature, I'm just trying to get my exercise in. But I think just reminding ourselves to be mindful, look around and appreciate what you see and even the little details, um, right. even the wind on your face. Huh. I think that's an important part of, of getting in touch with nature and getting the benefits. So what, what's the average thing that you prescribe? What would you tell somebody to go do? Yes, we have a defined recommendation as part of our plan um, for at least two hours per week total and at least 20 minutes each time. And that's actually based on evidence. There were a couple studies that came out last year. One of them showed that um, adults who spent at least 120 minutes in nature per week were more likely to report a greater sense of well-being and health. And then another study came out showing that the cortisol or stress hormone drop between that 20 and 30 minute mark is in fact uh, the most efficient when you head out. So you know, your cortisol continues to drop after that, but it drops the fastest between right. those, you know, that minute mark. So uh, that's why we have a recommendation of two hours each week, at least two hours each week and at least 20 minutes each time. This is also very clever on the part of doctors who are doing this, Dr. Lem, because, you know, we always say you want your patients to exercise more. This is a good way to get them to do that. Absolutely. And I mean, naturally, when you head out into green space, typically you will be moving more, especially kids. There is good research showing that they do, you know, they are more likely to hit their exercise targets when they head out into green space. But we're not necessarily emphasizing the exercise part of it. Um, We're also saying just being in green space. The research shows that just sitting for 15 minutes looking at a forest compared to looking at a city street drops your cortisol level significantly. So whether you're exercising or whether you're just sitting there having a, you know, having a picnic with your family, 
family. Well, I guess it's winter time, but yeah. anyway, you know, playing in a park with your family, it, it you know, you still get the benefits, even if you're not uh, necessarily exercising. So, is that something that you're hearing a lot about from patients? Then, do they feel stressed? Do they feel that anxiety? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, especially, you know, if you remember when, when the smoke hit, uh, you know, the lower mainland over the summer, calls to my office for, for depression and anxiety and stress just went through the roof, you know, so on top of the pandemic, you know, also thinking about climate change, both of these things together really increased stress. So yes, absolutely, definitely more seeing more patients for mental health issues. And even just speaking with my colleagues, like we, we are all a bit more stressed, obviously, you know, worried for our own health and also worried about our families and our patients' health. So I think now with the intersection of all these different issues and crises, I think nature and health are really having a moment. And I think it's our job as healthcare professionals to really get that message out there. That's such a great idea. Okay, once again, what is the website? The website is www.parkprescriptions.ca. All right, we'll check it out. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. That is Dr. Melissa Lem. She's a local family doctor working with the BC Parks Foundation. And they think, listen, being outdoors, having some time outdoors to enjoy nature is so significant of a benefit that doctors should consider prescribing it for people with increased stress and anxiety. Somehow having that little piece of paper that says, go do this on there, makes people do things that they perhaps wouldn't necessarily do just on their own. This is Mornings with Simi. We know one of the problem spots in Surrey has been really the growing concern over what's happening in schools. So many COVID-19 exposures in Surrey schools. Parents have been raising concerns about not enough information, having to use their own resources to try to find out what's going on. And against that backdrop, we got Cambridge Elementary in Surrey. It actually reopens today after an outbreak of COVID-19 shut them down for two weeks. Meanwhile, Newton Elementary is going to be closed for the next two weeks after they had an outbreak of their own that was discovered last week. What's going on there? This struggle to try to contain these transmissions is very challenging. Joining us now is Matt Westfall, who's the Surrey Teachers Association president. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Simi. How are teachers in Surrey doing these days? They're having a hard time, Simi. People are feeling quite concerned for their own safety and for that of students and loved ones. But they're also starting to feel pretty angry, too, at the continued resistance from the provincial level about making some changes for places like Surrey, where the virus really seems out of control. Are teachers, like, what are they telling you in terms of the information they receive? Like, is every school different in how they are treating this? Uh, The schools vary. Like, not every school has had transmissions, or sorry, exposures. Most have. Uh, The biggest thing we hear is the the frustration about the delays in hearing officially from Fraser Health about an exposure. I'll just give one example. Uh, I know a teacher who had a student last week, they seem sick. They've since heard from the parent that the child is tested positive. But they've heard nothing from Fraser Health. And they've been told by management that they're not allowed to tell the other adults who work in that room about a positive test, even without saying the name of the student, because, well, we don't want to cause a panic and we don't we can't get ahead of Fraser Health. But we may not hear from Fraser Health for another week based on our experience. Because, well, we also know Fraser Health is getting pretty overwhelmed at this point. Absolutely. That's very frustrating then to know this and to not be able to kind of circulate that information a little bit more widely. It's a real burden. People feeling worried because they have information which could affect the safety of the people they work with, and they're not allowed to tell anyone about it. 
So then how are teachers dealing with this? Are they finding their own ways to deal with it? Like, how do you, how do you cope with something like that? Well, I think most people, you know, they get up like every day, they put one foot in front of the other because they, they want to do the best they can for their students, present a calm face for them and take care of the students' educational needs. But meanwhile, they have this dread hanging overhead, wondering, is my school going to be the next? Is it here already? There's, that's a real burden yeah. for people, and a lot of people are burning out. Now, Matt, are, like, what more could be done to help out here, right? Because not every district is the same. Surrey is clearly struggling there. Uh, what more could be done? What can parents do? What can administrators do? What can the government do? I would focus on, on the government. So far... The plan, there's been one plan for all of BC, regardless of the local conditions. And what we see here is we need something different for Surrey and other places where the transmissions are getting higher. And what we've, we've been calling for is two main things. One is to actually make masks mandatory for everyone in, in classrooms, unless they have a medical exception. And the other thing is to reduce our class density. And that means no more than half of the students are in a classroom at any given time. That would allow physical distancing. Right. So you think that would work if the government said, listen, we're just going to do this in Surrey for now to to crack down on this? Yes. Well, it would certainly help. It would help people feel safer. I think it would help the confidence both of teachers and other staff and also parents that their kids will be safe going to school. Is the community getting the message, do you think, Matt? Because obviously this doesn't work unless all the families buy in, right? And they're doing the same things at school that they're doing away from school. Well, that, that's a challenge because the schools can only control what happens there. But I've heard discussion of, well, if parents come and drop their kids off, even if they're on school property talking to each other outside, yeah. let's encourage them to wear masks. Let's do as much as we can to try to do it. But when it's just encouragement, some people will follow it and some people won't. Right. That's got to be very frustrating for teachers, though, right? Like you're working in these situations, you're doing the best you can, and then you look on the school grounds and you see parents not following along. Well, yeah, and many people report, okay, say high school students, they're generally pretty good with the masks, but as soon as they go out the doors of the school, off they come, and who knows what they're doing outside. So that's a real challenge. So where have we, do you think, fallen down? Is it messaging? Is it, did we not realize that maybe we need to act faster in certain areas? I, I, I believe that the, the government moved a little too quickly to having all students back in school right away, uh, rather than starting a little more slowly this school year and seeing how it developed. Because this is not a surprise that in November we're, start, we're having really high numbers and that we're having transmissions in schools. So we think we need to take a step back because what we don't want to have is for it to get so bad that the schools have to shut down entirely and everyone go to full remote because then students will miss out on that chance for face-to-face interaction. So that's why we're proposing kind of a halfway house between those two. Okay, so what has the reaction been to that proposal then? What have you heard from the district, for instance? I haven't heard anything back yet. I'm going to be speaking to one MLA today, but we're, we're going to continue pushing it because uh, something's got to change. Because if we keep on doing what we've been doing, we're, we've seen what the results are. I predict we will have more schools closing. That means more people getting sick, more people having to self-isolate, less confidence in the schools. So your recommendation here is that like, in this particular situation, we should be treating Surrey differently and having like a very Surrey-specific solution for this. Yes, because if not now, then when will it happen? Because we have different stages in this educational plan, but we've heard no indication, okay, at what point would we step back? So that's, that's the concern is how far are they going to let this drift? Just saying, well, there's not that much transmission. How much transmission is okay? All right. All right, Matt, thanks so much. And listen, good luck. Thank you very much. 
That is Matt Westfall, who's the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Uh, they are concerned with what they see happening in Surrey schools. Of course, with the numbers in Surrey raging so high right now, uh, obviously they've got problems in schools as well. You've got one school reopening today after being shut down for two weeks. You've got another one that is shutting down for two weeks because they have also had an outbreak within their school community. That's Newton Elementary. So if you're a Surrey parent then, how do you feel about that? Does This is something that BC has really resisted up until this point, and that is looking at regions and saying, okay, there's a problem there, so we're just going to crack down right there. Uh, that is not something that we have really done in this province. Is it time, do you think, to change that attitude? Do you, th- do you think the government should say, all right, Surrey, there's clearly a problem in your city, so we are going to come in with tougher measures for just Surrey. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, cast your mind back, way back to the beginning of this pandemic. I know it feels like it's gone on forever and ever, but remember there was a time when even like preschools and playgrounds were closed, so kids couldn't even play outside on playgrounds. Well, five-year-old Tristan Kennedy spent a lot of time at home when that was happening, and out through his window, he would see people walking past his house every day. So, with the help of his parents, I absolutely love this, he began writing jokes on a piece of paper and then posting them at the end of his driveway so people could read them as they walked by. And he was doing that just hoping that people would get a bit of a laugh out of that. Once they had more than 150 jokes, well, Tristan and his mom decided they were going to create a book with the proceeds going to charity. What a great idea. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to five-year-old Tristan Kennedy and his mom, Naya Kohut. So the book came from the fact that we had spent five months posting jokes every single day outside our house. And with Tristan starting kindergarten, it was going to be a little too much to continue doing that every morning, along with everything else that already goes on. So I wanted to preserve it for Tristan so that he could see what he had accomplished later on in life when he perhaps he might appreciate it not necessarily more than he does now but certainly in a different way and so we had kept all of the original jokes and I was looking at them and I was like yeah I can three hole punch these and put them in a binder somewhere but it didn't really seem to fit what the jokes had become and so started looking into possibly publishing a book thinking that it might be a good way to to save everything and then Perhaps, you know, grandma and grandpa would like a copy. Perhaps the aunties would like a copy. Maybe some of the people who had walked by and given us such positive feedback as to how much the jokes had meant to them would want a copy. Well, that's one of the fantastic things about this story that I love so much is how without any expectation, Tristan and yourself, you know, you you put these jokes out at the end of your driveway just to make complete strangers smile. I love that. That was the one and only goal. Yeah. That's great. So Tristan, have you always been known as a pretty funny guy in your family? She can't see if you shrug your shoulders. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you made me laugh now. So I guess, yeah, you must be funny. What's what's one of your favorite jokes? Why can't you hear a pterodactyl in the bathroom? Why can't I hear a pterodactyl in the bathroom? 
Ooh, I don't know. You better tell me. The P is silent. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. Okay, give me another one. Uh, what's a drummer's favorite fruit? What's a vegetable? What's a drummer's favorite vegetable? Hmm, I don't know. What is it? Beets. <laughs> Beets, of course. Those jokes are fantastic. So, are those uh, some examples of jokes that you posted at the end of your driveway during the pandemic? Uh huh. That's cool. And are those jokes that we can also find inside the book? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And Naya, the proceeds from the sale of this book they go to a good cause too, don't they? Yes, they're being shared between two local charities: the Friends in Need Food Bank and the Ridge Meadows Senior Society. Need food bank, and there is a lot of causes at the senior society about COVID. Yeah, we figured the the purpose of the jokes was to bring smiles, and the purpose of the book was to continue to bring smiles. And it just seemed as though the older population seemed to be both most affected by the virus and most isolated by it. So they were the ones probably in most need of smiles at the time, and then the food bank as well, because again they were going to see such a surge in need based on everything that had happened this year. And so far, we have sold over three hundred books. Wow! And have over three thousand dollars for charity now. That is excellent. That's really fantastic. Thank you very much. Are you so proud of Tristan for doing this? Exceptionally proud. You know, as a mom, have you always noticed that he's had a pretty good sense of humor? Yeah, definitely. He, I think, he created his very first joke, maybe around like three and a half, four. Wow, a born comedian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tristan, when you grow up, what do you think you want to do for a living? Would you want to be a stand-up comedian? No. <laughs> smart man. Smart man. What What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a policeman. Wow, good for you! That's fantastic. I don't want to be anything else than a policeman. <laughs> hey, good for you. Where can people order the book? Just Tristan's email. And Naya, what's Tristan's email? Tristan's email is Tristan's Joke Book at Shaw dot ca. Tristan's Joke Book at Shaw dot ca. Books cost twenty dollars plus five dollars for postage for shipping, and it's amazing. It's become so much more than we could have ever imagined it would have been at the beginning, and it's pretty cool to think a lot of people are buying it for Christmas gifts. And it's really cool to think that you know, in just a few weeks from now, people will all be sitting somewhere <laughs> and perhaps getting to open up Tristan's book, and we'll have a few smiles and laughter. From it, so that's really, really cool to think that that's going to happen in, like, all over the country. Yeah, that's so great. Well, hey, thanks so much, you guys. Really nice chatting with you. Well, thank you very much, Nikki. Thank you for your time.